Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Jake Stone. I'm Jesse Owens. And we welcome you to another episode of Generally Particular, a production of the London Lyceum. Generally Particular is a show dedicated to and discussing the whole Baptist story. We are a show about Baptist, by Baptist, and for Baptist, as well as those who are outside of, but we won't say the kingdom of God, but in my landmark days, we'd say they won't be in the city, but outside of it. I'm a Calvinist Baptist. And Jesse is an Arminian Baptist. In the 17th and 18th centuries, we would have been known as a general Baptist and particular Baptist. So we've brought those two together in a way that we think is fun, and that is to form generally particular. Today's episode is No Jellyfish Here, Baptist and Confessions of Faith. Now, what do jellyfish, confessions of faith, and Baptists have to do with one another? Well, I'm glad that you asked because it comes from a quote by B.H. Carroll, the bearded one, as some called him, the first president of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and one of the great Baptist statesmen at the end of the early at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. Now, B.H. Carroll said the following about confessions of faith, creeds, and it's fascinating to think about his context when he says this. Quote, the modern cry, less creed and more liberty. By the way, that's the cry of Jesse's tradition. Is a degeneration from the vertebrate to the jellyfish and means less unity and less morality, and it means more heresy. Definitive truth does not create heresy. It exposes and corrects. Shut off the creed and the Christian world would fill up with heresy, unsuspected and uncorrected, but nonetheless deadly. Now, you just might as well proclaim yourself a simpering idiot as to stand there opposing and saying, oh, let's not have any dogmas, creeds, and confessions of faith. Let's have religion. How can you have a creedless religion? You had just as well adopt as your God a jellyfish floated up on the beach that had no backbone, merely a pulpy mass as to say, I want a religion without a creed. A man cannot have a religion without a creed, and the religion he does have is not worth anything unless it is a vow. The avowal of it is a confession of faith. Now, that's some fire from B.H. Carroll. What do you think, Jesse? Is that a little too yeah. strong for you? It's not too strong for me, but that sounded like uh, something from a Jake Stone sermon circa 2005 or so. Well, I, I wasn't preaching yet in 2005, but let me just say that I have a special place in my heart for B.H. Carroll because it is his brother J.M. Carroll who published the, the Trail of Blood. And so the Carroll brothers, now they were some Baptist dudes, we, we would have to say. We're kind of trying to emulate them. Of course, we know that Jesse would be more B.H. and I would be more J.M. since Jesse's never been a landmarker. So... Isn't there a isn't there a picture of you floating around somewhere with um, with um, B. H. Carroll? Not that I know of. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking there was a picture of you with his portrait or something like that. No, I, I do, but I do have I do have his uh, commentary set here, and our audience should know that it was Jesse who gave me um, that set for free. And uh, but if you set. ever would like to purchase it from me, I'll make you a good deal too. <laughs> so let's think about the statement, though. Many believe that Baptists subscribe to no creed but Christ, that they have no use for confessions of faith and 
certainly not to say that confessions and creeds are in any way authoritative. In fact, some would say that the Baptist tradition has scoffed and scorned confessions from the beginning. But Carroll and his argumentation there is actually what Baptists have traditionally believed concerning confessions and creeds. Would you agree with that, Jesse? Absolutely. Or I think if you hold a different view, you're going to have to explain to us why there are so many confessions of faith from Baptists in the 17th century, especially in the early 17th century. And so we've kind of been walking through the last few episodes, the kind of four benchmarks that Dr. Tom Nettles sets forth for Baptist identity. So let's give Jesse a pop quiz. Jesse, what are the first three that we've discussed? I had to had to get off mute there. Um, wow, this is taking a long time. Obviously, you, you were sleeping through our own production. Let's <laughs> maybe I can uh, <clears throat> maybe I can uh, phone a friend on that. I don't do lifelines on my show. All right, I'll go Orthodox, Evangelical, ecclesiologically separate. Yes, or theologically, or theologically integrated. integrated ecclesiology yes. and confession. Yes, and so this is the fourth one, which is conscientiously confessional, is how Dr. Nettles terms it in his book. And so we're kind of seeing that in Baptist life, uh, our confessions of faith have been a taking of what is orthodox, what is Protestant or evangelical, and then what is Baptist, and putting those in these documents that are a confession of these truths that we believe. And Dr. Nettles says this, just as each person uniting with a Baptist church should be able to give some expression of what is believed, so each church should make plain to the membership and to the world the truths that are believed by the church as a whole. Issues of church purity and individual clarity of conscience have prompted Baptists from the earliest days to produce confessions of faith. The confessions have been used not only as personal declarations, but as documents of formative and corrective discipline. The disciplinary use of confessions seems to be one of the most offensive and misunderstood elements of the historic Baptist witness. Many contemporary persons who link themselves to the Baptist name because of their avow, avow of a misunderstood concept of liberty of conscience reject this assertion that this has ever been promoted by Baptist. And so as we think about confessions of faith in Baptist life, where do we turn to historically? How do we see, Jesse, where Baptists have written? Yeah, well, I'll just start, um, since I'm the token Arminian, I'll just start with the general Baptist confessions of faith. So from the various or very earliest years, you see in the separation with Smith and Helwes, when they go their separate ways, that Helwes, uh, the Helwes group puts together a declaration of faith. Uh, it's called the Declaration of Faith of English People Remaining at Amsterdam in Holland, which I'd like to remind you every time we talk about this, uh, was published in 1611. It was a good year for... Um, for Confessions of Faith. What else happened and, uh, in 1611? Uh, the, the KJB. The KJB. The Authorized Bible. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think James also authorized uh, Thomas Hollis being thrown in prison. So we could talk about well, that. Nobody's again. perfect. On another episode. Um, but you have Helwes setting forth his, his uh, Declaration of Faith. And what he's trying to do is distinguish himself uh, from Smith on a variety of things, including uh, Christology, uh, but especially successionism, uh, baptismal succession, and a Anabaptist understanding of um, the magistrate. So he's trying to clarify uh, his beliefs on those things. And then later in the century, uh, you have some other confessions of faith in between, uh, but you have the standard confession or brief confession of faith uh, from the English General Baptist in 1660. And then in the 1670s, in the late 1670s, 
you have the Midlands General Baptists who put together an Orthodox creed. And they're putting together an Orthodox creed, I think, in response to the proliferation of uh, heterodox uh, Christology and heterodox teachings on the doctrine of the Trinity occurring among some General Baptists, uh, particularly Matthew Caffin, uh, but also throughout England at that time in the, the second half of the 17th century. And that standard confession has a lot of really precise language on the doctrine of the Trinity and biblical Christology, creedal uh, language that they're drawing from the early uh, creeds. So those are some examples of the use of confessions of faith among general Baptists in the 17th century, thinking specifically about the Helwes Confession, the Standard Confession, and an Orthodox Creed. So wasn't it the the confessions with Smith and Helwes was to distinguish between one who was Pelagian and the other was semi-Pelagian. That's correct, right? I think that's what some of the Calvinist historians have said, yes. Yeah. Well, we only I, just report the facts. Yeah, we let the viewer, yeah. we, we report, you decide. I Well, I will say, you know, interestingly enough, you know, since most people, you know, don't read the primary sources, they just repeat these things. Um, Helwes himself um, basically uh, says that damnable heresy free will so uh, I don't I don't know that he was a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian, but anyways. He was being sanctified. <laughs> well, so the interesting thing is, is that when we talk about confessions of faith then in the particular Baptist stream, uh, one thing that I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, you know, Helwes and Smith are, you know, written, they're written by an individual in, in a sense. And what's kind of interesting is that in 1644, what we call the first London Baptist Confession of Faith is, from my understanding, would be the first confession of faith adopted by an association, in a sense, of Baptist churches. And so that's correct, right, Jesse? I, I think that's correct, okay. yes. And, and so and that becomes, and it's called the first London Confession because obviously there comes a second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Of course, that's written in 1677. Um, but it's published anonymously because of the situation for dissenters in England, but it gets its name the 1689 primarily because the General Assembly that gathers in London that year after the ascension of William and Mary to the throne and the glorious revolution, they're able to meet publicly and the terminology own uh, the confession of faith. But the Second London Baptist Confession uh, really works off of the Savoy Declaration, which is itself a Congregationalist uh, revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the 1689, or the Second London, uh, really becomes the most influential confession in, in Baptist history. I mean, it comes here to America. It is adopted with two additional articles by the Philadelphia Baptist Association, and then it is also adopted in the South by the Charleston Baptist Association. Charleston takes the second London. The two editions that Philadelphia does, they only use one of those editions. And so really that confessional uh, Calvinist dream that is in Baptist life really flows out of the impact that the second London confession has throughout really decades as you move into the, the 19th century. Now, in the 19th century, it becomes more and more popular to have uh, abstracts or condensed versions of confessions of faith being used. So, for example, in Southern Baptist life, the abstract of principles really becomes something very important uh, to the seminary at Southern, and it is the really a summary of the Second London or the Charleston Confession of Faith. And then there's also the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, which arises in 1833. Uh, it's revised in 1853, and it's included in J.M. Pendleton's church manual. And that manual is very popular in the South among Baptists. It's very much popular uh, confession in, in my own background in landmarkism. In fact, the association that I grew up in, uh, we had in our minute book, the uh, 
the template for if a church wanted to join our association. And part of that template was they had to agree to the articles of faith found in Pendleton's church manual. And that's kind of a side. Nobody even knew what, what that was, but that was the New Hampshire Confession <laughs> of Faith. Um, and so that really has a, you know, it's in, in itself is it comes out of the, the tradition of the Second London. And it's the New Hampshire Baptist Confession that becomes the basis for the Baptist faith and message in the Southern Baptist Convention, first written in 1925. Now, if you read um, historians from the 20th century, especially the early 20th century, that write on Baptist confessions, you'll always hear this said, uh, that the New Hampshire Confession was a reaction to the rigid Calvinism of the Philadelphia Confession. Now, when you, anytime, to our audience listening... I, I, I prefer stringent Calvinism. Anytime that you hear the term rigid, strict, um, you know, the, you all, that's always can kind of let you know... Stringent, stringent. Yes, stringent. Yes, you can always know where that person, where they land at when it comes to their views on soteriology that they don't like Calvinism. So I will, I will concede at all moderate Calvinism. You'll hear that too about the New Hampshire. I can make an argument that I think it contains at least four of the five points clearly, but we're not doing an, we're not doing an episode on the New Hampshire confession. However, if you want to go back to the early days of the London Lyceum, when they couldn't get really good guests and they had to have people on like me, um, one of the first episodes they ever did was me talking about the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. You can check out. I would still stand by everything that I said in there. It's it's really amazing considering that, that the London Lyceum is still up and running. Yeah, I, I, I like to say that, you know, they weathered the storm having people like me, you know, on there. <laughs> and um, I, I kind of sometimes think that people said, wow, this this show has potential if they could upgrade on who they have on and so I, I think they have over time so yeah well you know you can only pay the talent so much you know yeah, that that's true and, and i came on for nothing so <laughs> yeah so so uh just like this podcast so anyway we, we don't get paid you can probably tell so <laughs> um so jesse we we just kind of tell us because we know that you're part of the the free will baptist association Kind of, what is the confessional standard where, where y'all are today? I know that we did a very fast run through of confessions in Baptist history, but where are y'all now? Yeah, do we have just one, say, or is it just the New Testament? We we, we do. It, it is the correct interpretation of the New Testament. That that's oh. it. So um, in in America, in what sometimes uh, we call the general free will Baptist tradition, the connection between the general Baptist. In America and the the formation of the the Free Will Baptist or the, the National Association of Free Will Baptists in the 20th century comes directly uh, in the South from a connection with the English General Baptist. So the 1812 abstract uh, that we have is a condensed version of the standard confession of the English General Baptist from the 1660s. And then for the denomination I'm in, the National Association of Free Will Baptists, we have a treatise, uh, which is a confession of faith. And the way that that typically functions in our setting is it is a governing document. Uh, but for pastors, typically within an association, uh, you within within our, our denomination, you are often examined by an association and within that association, there will be a grouping of pastors who form sort of a, an examining committee, sometimes referred to as a presbyterian. And they will examine uh, the doctrinal beliefs uh, of an individual. And so you, you have to usually in that process affirm uh, the treatise or our confession of faith. So that's the way that it functions typically for ministers within, within my denomination. Okay. So... And as a side note, they called it a presbytery when I was ordained a long time ago. We won't talk about all the questions I got asked back then. So now when we talk about Baptist and confessions of faith, let's kind of get to the real controversial stuff. Most everybody, unless you're just really 
going to be, I, I would say, deliberately ignorant or uh, twisting, revising the history. Everybody understands that Baptists have written confessions of faith and used them. Um, you just, you, that's the record. You have these big books like Lumpkins of Baptist confessions if Baptists didn't do that. Really where the, the issue comes down is what's the actual role of the confession of faith? And really, when people are debating about, are we going to be creedal? Are we going to be confessional? You know, what they're really debating is, are we going to subscribe or not? And, and that's really the debate in Baptist life is over subscription. So are these documents to be adhered to in a strict way or a loose way? Are they binding upon the churches in an association um, of churches? How does it function denominationally? Um, what have Baptists thought about using confessions of creeds in a way where they actually have teeth? And then is a creed or a confession being binding? Is that a violation of liberty of conscience, which is you know, seen as one of the great distinctives of, of Baptist history? So anytime that you really get pushback against any notion of confessional subscription in Baptist life, you're going to hear something like Baptists are not creedal and that we, we believe in the liberty of a person or a church and we can't, we can't do that. Here's where I think is the, the big missing of the point. Baptists have never believed that the state had the right to mandate belief in a creed or a confession. We've never believed that somehow the government that is over us civilly can say, you must believe this. But within, and I use the term figuratively, but it, within the four walls of a church, there was to be conformity to a doctrinal standard. And if you were outside of that doctrinal standard, then you were in error or heresy. And so as Baptists, we believe in the principle of voluntary association, but we've never believed in voluntary associationalism disconnected from a confessional doctrinal unity. Thoughts on that, Dr. Owens? Well, I, th yeah. I think the voluntary association key um, component is key. I mean, that that's it, right? So um, so if people are associating with a church or with an association or the denomination, they are doing so voluntarily and involuntarily joining that church, they're consenting to that doctrinal statement. So again, no, even if we choose to Im impose the confession um, or to discipline someone when they teach in opposition to the confession, we're not coercing that person in the sense of using the power of the state. That person has the freedom to believe otherwise. It just means they can't be in uh, relation to this congregation or to this denomination or to this association if they don't affirm our, our doctrinal statement. I was uh, reading earlier in, um, in uh, Matthew Pinson's chapter in Evangelicals and the Nicene Faith again, and uh, he, he says in there about Thomas Grantham, Grantham argued that each individual retains a, quote, judgment of science or knowledge in what he chooseth or refuseth. I know you like that language, Jake. Yes. This judgment gives individuals the right to differ, this is Pinson, from church authority without fear of coercion by church or state. Yet this was a very different way from modern Baptist concepts of, he says, of individuals such, such as Francis Whalen. Rather, the church has the right and obligation to require individuals in, communi in communion with it to maintain harmony with the corporate confession of the church. So again, when we think about voluntary association, that, that's the key element. No one, no one is forcing you to associate with these churches. No one is going to throw you in prison if you don't affirm the confession. But we are saying this is the doctrinal statement of this congregation or of this association or of this denomination. 
And so to be in fellowship with us is to affirm this confession, this statement of faith. And I think that that's a, a key component. The, the voluntary association uh, part is, is essential. And there's a relationship here, I think, with a Baptist understanding religious toleration or religious liberty as well. Yeah, and I think that it's totally, it misses the historical precedent and pattern that is found in Baptist life to say that Baptists have never used confessions and creeds in a way of ensuring doctrinal fidelity and accountability within a local church and then an association of churches. So in the volume Polity edited by Mark Dever, Dr. Greg Wills writes a chapter in there and spends a lot of time on confessions of faith and, and associations. And, and he says this, he said, quote, most Baptists employed confessions of faith and supported their use. Most churches adopted them. So did most associations. Associations usually required churches applying for membership to present their creed because they felt that the association should comprise churches of the same faith and practice only. They judged they had no assurance of a church's orthodoxy unless its messengers presented the association a written statement endorsed by the church. Baptists defended their use of creeds when anti-creedalists attacked them. Beginning around 1820, Alexander Campbell, leader of the Restorationist movement which produced the Disciples of Christ, sought to reform the Baptist churches. He opposed their creeds, the Calvinism expressed in their creeds, and the clergy who sustained both. Campbell convinced many Baptists to oppose their creeds, but the large majority of Baptists pleaded that creeds were merely the written expression of their views of Scripture, and as such were both lawful and needful. In the 1830s, the Baptists disfellowshipped those members who subscribed to Campbell's views. Baptist associations excluded churches that rescinded their creeds. The Flint River Baptist Association in Georgia, for example, excluded the Bethlehem Church for this in 1852. Baptists believed that without a creed, a church lacked theological stability and would drift into heresy. More commonly, they concluded that a church that rescinded its creed probably had embraced heresy already. I think about um, really the, the what a lot of people say is the Baptist view is often really it's the Campbellite view that really became later as you moved into the 20th century, you know, mixed into Baptist life. But I think about this you, 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 in the uh, thing you read earlier from Dr. Pinson, and he talks about the difference with Francis Whalen. And I think this, this would be a whole different um episode in and of itself, but Francis Whalen was a very influential Baptist in the North, and he was not as strong or an advocate of confessional or creedal subscription. And I somewhat wonder, and of course, as you move into the, the 20th century, Baptists in the North moved into liberalism in a way that even Southern Baptists didn't, and that culminates in the 1920s when a motion for the Northern Baptist Convention to adopt the New Hampshire Confession didn't happen. It, it failed because a substitute was presented to say the New Testament is our rule for faith and order. And I wonder somewhat if Baptists in the South having to deal with the Campbellite movement, if that's what made them more convictional in their confessionalism longer than their counterparts in the North. I know we didn't have a plan to talk about that, but I just kind of come off the top of my head. So what do you think? Uh, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it would be much more complex than we uh, we have time or ability to address right here. I will say uh, regarding the the wills material, maybe that this is something we probably should have said earlier. And uh, and Jordan would uh, and, and Brandon would have would chastise us for is when we're thinking about confessions of faith. We're really just thinking about the setting forth of our sense of Scripture, right? So what is the sense of the text? So we're saying it's not enough to just say, like you kind of jokingly said a moment ago, we believe the Bible or we believe the New Testament. That, that's insufficient because we need to know what is the sense of the text, and the earliest Baptists understood that. They were just setting forth their understanding, their sense of the text. 
1660 Standard Confession, that's one of the things that they make very clear. These are our beliefs. And then at the end, they say, by the way, and in the belief and practice of these things, and you like this, Jake, it being the good old apostolic way, mm-hmm. our souls have found that rest and soul peace, which the world knows not, and which they cannot take from us. Of whom then should we be afraid? God has become our strength, our light, our salvation. Therefore, we are resolved through grace to seal the truth of these things in a way of suffering persecution, not only to the loss of our goods, freedoms, or liberties, but with our lives also have called thereunto. So the confession for them, again, is just saying, this is what we believe. This is what we think the Bible teaches on these doctrines. And so that's that's all confessions of faith are, is giving our sense of the text. One of the things that you'll see in the 17th and especially in the early 18th century uh, among dissenters and even among Baptists is, and you find it somewhat, I think, even in Calvin, where when there's kind of an anti-confessional spirit, the thing that comes up is if we can't give our sense of the, the text, let's say in a written format in a confession, then how do we ever teach? And how do we ever preach? For what are those things except giving our sense of the text in our own words? So if all we're going to do is use biblical words and phrases, and all we have is the Bible, well, then that's all we can do. But the moment that we're able to give our sense of the text, whether in teaching or in preaching or in any other format, why are we not able to record those things, write them down publicly, and consent to them, and uh, and guard our teaching and our congregations in accordance with those things? So I think that just the the idea that a confession is merely our sense of, of the text is uh, is probably worth worth pointing out. Well, well, two things. Number one, I, I uh, Jesse used that term apostolic, and I. I have to pay tribute to our head librarian here at Southern, Dr. C. Barry Driver. His favorite terminology to use for the Baptist tradition is the apostolic way, and I heartily amen him. And also, second, so what you're saying, Jesse, is that a confession of faith in and of itself is an interpretation of Scripture, that it is giving... um, what we believe the Bible to teach, therefore it provides us with a hermeneutical theological method. Would you agree, would you say that's true? I think you could definitely read the confessions and get a sense of their biblical interpretation, their hermeneutic. Uh, and I think it can help us in our reading of scripture. I think it can function in that capacity. Yes, I think it can be didactic. Absolutely. But um, but yes, it, it's generally a giving of our sense, our understanding, our interpretation of the biblical text, rather than just a restatement of the biblical text. And I, I will say, there has been some disagreement among Baptists throughout history, and you can see this among the general Baptists, on how much technical language and phrases that we should use. So should we use words like consubstantial? Uh, Should we use words like essence? Or there are a whole host of things like this you can see. So some of the general Baptists uh, in the 1660 preferred to stick primarily with biblical words and phrases. And you see this in in the standard confession, the brief confession. And in the Orthodox creed, you see them drawing heavily on the language of the, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed and the Chalcedonian definition, and they don't hesitate to use that language at all. So there, there, are, there are some disagreements on the types of language that we use in the confessions. That's probably something worth uh, drawing out a bit. Uh, but but as, as, as far as it functions as a general sense of what we think the Bible says, uh, and a setting forth of those things, that that is the, the capacity that the confession functions in. I would also want our audience to know that the standard confession, or they're more Anabaptist, and the Orthodox Creed is called the most Calvinistic of the General Baptist Confessions. There's just another example of why you should prefer the latter over the former. Can I get a witness, Jesse, from you? 
I uh, I personally like an Orthodox creed. Yes. Thank you. So we, we kind of have been talking about this and, and I just want to give one kind of another quote about this. This is interesting. I think, first of all, now we're really going to sound. I'm going to sound really nerdy here for just a moment, but that's okay. This is what this podcast is for. Um, if you're still listening to us at this point in our journey, then you must be as much of a nerd as us. But J.L. Reynolds, who pastored Second Baptist in Richmond, Virginia, he wrote a work on polity in the 1840s. And I always love when I when I can see men who they're linking themselves to and explaining their views. And Reynolds has a whole section on the usage of confessions and creeds in the life of a church. And he gives a strong, robust um, defense about why a church has the right to judge what is orthodox and what's not and who can be a member. And he quotes Andrew Fuller, a work that Fuller wrote on creeds and subscription. And so this is from Andrew Fuller. And, and, and he cites as, if a Christian society have no right to judge what is truth and to render an agreement with them in certain points a term of communion, then neither have they a right to judge what is righteousness, nor to render an agreement in matters of right and wrong a term of communion. And that's why Baptists had confessions and they had covenants. And that's really what a covenant was, you know, guarding the the life, the morality, and the ethics of a person in the church. So, you know, we think about the importance, and, and, I, and I kind of am bringing this out about, I asked Jesse for a reason about, is a confession itself an interpretation? Is because, you know, the seminary that both Jesse and I are part of, you know, studies and so forth, Southern Seminary, uh, really, the story in the 20th century was more and more a departure away from how James P. Boyce envisioned the abstract of principles in the life of the institution. He said if a person was going to teach at the school and it became a part of the charter, the foundational laws, that you could not, you had to sign your agreement with the confession, the abstract of principles, and you couldn't have any private reservation. And there couldn't be a, you know, well, I know it says this, but I, I'm, I interpret it this way. And that's what ends up happening in the course of Southern's history is it began to allow people to say, I sign, but I don't actually believe it the way it was written. And so this is why it's important when we're studying confessions of faith, we don't come. So right here, is kind of my confessional symbolic section right here. So here's Lumpkin, and here are Jim Renahan's two expositions of the first and second London, and this is Sam Waldron. And, and so when we're studying a confession of faith, I don't approach these documents from the 17th or the 18th or the 19th century, and I just pour in my 21st century views or my 21st century understandings. I've got to understand what were they meaning when they wrote these documents. And so if a person signs the abstract, for example, we'll just use that for, it's not about how I want to interpret the abstract. It's about when those men who wrote that confession, well, what did they mean when they wrote it? So we have to go back and see, you know, what's the theological heritage of those men, what's framing and what's forming them. And that's why when uh, Crawford Toy is forced out at Southern, it is because he was teaching things that were contrary to what the abstract said about the nature of Scripture. Um, and, and so I think it's that that's something very crucial that I think sometimes is missing in people's studying and seeking to understand historic confessions of faith, that you don't begin with you and you don't begin with the present. You go back. Now, it's fine if you say, I disagree with them. That, that's totally legitimate. The problem is if we start trying to make them say something that will fit what we believe. So, by the way, one of the things you were saying there is a problem that they have in the Church of England in the, the early 1700s and that Presbyterians have and others have as well. Uh, in one work in the early 1700s, it was called uh, Arian Subscription. And the idea is that people 
would subscribe to a confession of faith and they wouldn't believe exactly in accordance with it. They would believe it with their own interpretation of it. And so it, it is probably worth saying here that we don't solve uh, the problem of, um, of false teaching simply by requiring subscription. That doesn't solve all of the problem. Uh, people can subscribe and not actually affirm what's in the confession. So that, that is something that we have to keep in mind. I mean, all you have to do is look at the demise of English Presbyterianism and think about the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's hard to get much more robust than that. Um, but you do have the demise of English Presbyterianism, uh, despite having a robust confession. So it's not as if it ensures orthodoxy perfectly. Uh, we do have to enforce orthodoxy, um, and uh, and that's the function of the the confession as well. Does the magistrate enforce orthodoxy? Uh, no, no. the ch The church does that. Okay. Uh, the church does that. And I would say that that is a significant difference, by the way, uh, between Baptists and and other groups. So no no one's going to to prison for not affirming the confession, but. Um, but they might be excommunicated from the church uh, for not affirming the confession. There's an excellent little work from the English General Baptist, uh, Joseph Hook, who was a disciple of Thomas Grantham. And he has this work from the 1720s called Creed Making and Creed Imposing Considered. And uh, basically what he says is, we don't make creeds. God makes creeds. <laughs> uh, we just Amen. simply... We just simply spell out uh, what it is that God has said. So he's saying we're giving our sense of the text, what God has already said. And he's saying we don't impose creeds if by imposing creeds you mean people are imprisoned or something else like that happens. But we do excommunicate. And he, he gives some distinctions between uh, people who are simple-minded maybe and can't fully understand exactly what the confession teaches on the doctrine of the Trinity but they don't teach in opposition to it. Maybe they just can't fully grasp everything that it, that it says. Well, what about the whole notion of liberty of conscience and Baptist life with confessions? I mean, Baptists will say, we don't believe in this kind of subscription stuff because we believe in soul competency and all of those things. Well, I, I think this is insightful for us to think about one of the men in Baptist life that gets presented as uh, the champion of soul competency, E.Y. Mullins. And I agree that Mullins sometimes can be used by anybody if they want to, because uh, he was kind of a, an enigma in many ways. But he said this, and this is towards the later in his life, about creeds in Baptist life. And I think it's very insightful. He said, a denomination controlled by a group who have no declared platform is heading for the rocks. The Baptist denomination has never allowed creeds to be opposed upon it by others. It has never compelled anyone in the denomination to accept the Baptist confessions of faith. But Baptists have always insisted upon their own right to declare their beliefs in a definite, formal way and to protect themselves by refusing to support men in important places as teachers and preachers who do not agree with them. This group right of self-protection is as sacred as any individual right. If a group of men known as Baptists consider themselves trustees of certain great truths, they have an inalienable right to conserve and propagate those truths unmolested by others in the denomination who oppose the truths. The latter have an equal right to unite with another group agreeing with them, but they have no right to attempt to make of the Baptist denomination a freelance club. And I think what Mullins is getting at is that you can't say that the individual right trumps the corporate right. And he's getting to the heart of what is a lot of the debate still to this day in the Southern Baptist Convention. 
I mean, right now there's, you know, debate is going to be fired up in New Orleans. Um, it's not just going to be the gumbo that's spicy next month down there, but it's about what is the role of, of the Baptist faith and message 2000. And, you know, we're not going to devote our time to debating what's going to happen because neither Jesse or I are actually members of a Southern Baptist church. But it, it does still, this is still the heart of the issue, is are we going to believe what we say that we believe? And, and if you're not, then you need to revise your confession um, and, and make it fit to what you're saying. But I, I just think what, you know, Jesse, you know a little bit about Mullins. I mean, I think it's just fascinating that the man that kind of is held as the champion of soul competency, I mean, that's pretty forceful from him. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think it, it's something that we probably said in a previous episode, and that is that when we're thinking about religious liberty or religious toleration, that that concept is not extended into the life of the church. People are not free within a given congregation to just believe whatever they want, even if it stands in contradiction to the confessional statement of the church. So you're free to believe whatever you want, and you're free to, to leave the congregation, but you're not free to believe whatever you want and teach whatever you want within the life of the congregation. You have to affirm and teach in accordance with the church's confession. So again, we can't take these ideas of religious toleration and religious liberty and take those concepts and then apply them to the life of the local church. That is not a Baptist understanding of religious liberty and religious toleration. That's where this sort of romanticized approach to individualism has misinterpreted and misunderstood a Baptist understanding of these concepts, and uh, and and it's highly problematic, and it's it's not consistent uh, with the tradition at all, and it's not healthy for the life of the local church either. Yes, and I, and I think to close this out, we we want to say that confessions of faith need to be more than just something that's printed in a book or bylaws and is tucked away, that we actually need to teach them and use them in, in our churches. So Timothy George wrote a really fascinating article in 1999 called The Ghost of the Southern Baptist Convention. And one of the ghosts that he talks about is the ghost of Campbellism, and it's on this issue of confessionalism. Because one of the big things in the debates and the battles in the Southern Baptist Convention at the end of the 20th century was that, you know, those that call themselves the moderates that would have upheld Mullins said we're Baptists, we're not creedalists, we're not confessionalists, that, you know, the fundamentalists or the creedalists and so forth. But uh, Timothy George really calls those that were conservative in the SBC that won the battle for the Bible, so to speak. He said this. All confessional traditions are liable to lapse into legalism, a charge SBC moderates have leveled against conservatives, sometimes with just cause. But confessionalist Christianity poses an even greater danger. Forsaking the distilled wisdom of the past makes every man's hat his own church. The revival of confessionalism poses a different challenge for mainstream conservative Baptists, namely how to use historic documents of the church in passing on the faith to the rising generation. If confessions of faith are to have a shaping role in Baptist life, they must be integrated into the didactic and liturgical mission of the church and not used merely as instruments of doctrinal correctness. So they do have a place of doctrinal accountability and fidelity but they're also to be means by which we teach. We equip the saints that they're able to stand against error and heresy. Yeah, I think using them for, for teaching and for edifying is, is absolutely the case. And I think we've seen some in the 20th century in this revival of confessionalism. We have seen where confessional groups have lapsed into a sort of legalism where the confession functions primarily or only or only uh, to sort of beat people over the head with it and and that is 
that shouldn't be the intent that that's that's not the goal it isn't just to sort of beat people over the head and, and keep them in line uh there there is that didactic function that the confession should have in the life of the church for um for for everyone but especially for those who are teaching in the life of the church absolutely so friends stay baptist no creed but christ is the campbellite not the baptist don't be a jellyfish be a baptist and don't make your confession a club that you beat people over the head with but may it be a rod a guide a way in which we stay fastened to the faith that has been delivered to us so jesse stay confessional my friend don't be like the general baptist who were anti-creeds and became heretics. We're counting on you to be a different stream in your tradition. Oh man. <clears throat> well, since we're pushing 50 minutes, I'll save that for, uh, save that my rejoinder to that for, for another time. How about that? Sounds good. As always, we love hearing your feedback, your comments. You have been listening to Generally Particular we really hope you've enjoyed so far as we've sought to establish what it means to be a Baptist. Above all, let's continue to be good stewards of the tradition that's been given to us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.